Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. This podcast is sponsored by Bayer. At Bayer, we believe human ingenuity can shape the future of agriculture. For more than 150 years, we've used science and imagination to advance health and nutrition. And together, we can achieve so much more. We've committed to a world where biodiversity thrives in harmony with humankind, where hunger and climate change are terms relegated to history books, where farms are more sustainable with plants that are more adaptive and resilient to help improve life for families and communities. In short, where agriculture is part of the solution. As a new leader in agriculture, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to grasp this moment to continue moving humanity forward by tirelessly shaping what's possible. Today's podcast is your opportunity to hear a rebroadcast of a well-attended PMA virtual town hall on gene editing. Gene editing has been thrust into the public interest. It's a breeding tool that can help make our food more nutritious, convenient, and grown more sustainably. As we will hear, it also has the potential to save the banana from a devastating disease. One of the things that we learned from the Q&A and conversations around this virtual town hall is the misunderstanding of the difference between GMO and gene editing. GMO stands for genetically modified organism and refers to plants created by altering genes with laboratory techniques in ways that conventional forms of breeding and nature can't, often by inserting genetic material from one species to another. There are very few genetically modified foods in produce. These include the innate potato, arctic apple, some sweet corn and squash varieties, the papaya, and the new Del Monte pink pineapple. Gene editing is also a molecular tool that can alter genes in an organism's genome. But gene editing is done without inserting any foreign DNA. The types of changes gene editing does to the genetic code, like deletions or alterations of genes, occur in nature all the time. With gene editing tools, breeders can make desired changes more precisely and quicker than it would take in nature to get the sought-after benefit. We will hear from a panel of executives from three top companies working in the area. Haven Baker is the co-founder and chief business officer at Pairwise. Fayez Kazi is the CEO from LO Life Systems, and Gilad Gershom is the CEO from Tropic Biosciences. Let's join the conversation as Haven Baker is introducing Pairwise. I represent Pairwise. Our, our mission is to build a healthier world through better fruits and vegetables. And we're primarily focused on uh, in increasing fruits and vegetable consumption. 
and try and do that through differentiation. So we're going to, we're using genetic to create uh, new items that I mean, consumers haven't seen or solve a, a consumer problem that prevent people from eating fruits and vegetables. And I can talk a little bit more about that later. Thank you. Uh, Fayaz, how about you? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm here representing Ello Life Systems. I serve as the CEO of Ello. And Ello is a North Carolina-based uh, food and agriculture company, uh, which leverages computational biology and the power of genome editing together uh, to develop products that improve human health and the health of the planet. And uh, what we are trying to do here is uh, two folds. Uh, one part is we are trying to show and demonstrate to the world that there is a whole lot to be leveraged by combining multiple technologies and therefore enable development, faster development in multiple products, especially in specialty crops. Gilad Gilshaw, I'm with Entropic Biosciences. We're based in the UK with a team of just over 100 professionals. Um, Tropic Biosciences, we've been around since 2016. We focus on using uh, gene editing in a, in a host of tropical uh, crops. And currently, our main focus is around the three of these, which are coffee, bananas, and uh, rice, where we focus on uh, the use of the technology in developing different products, uh, some of them uh, intended to, to improve the quality of the crop, for example, our uh, low-caffeine uh, coffee variety and others more important to increase resistance to different uh, diseases. Uh, for example, different projects in banana against Panama disease or in rice against uh, rice blast. So again, it's a pleasure to be here. Happy to, uh, to participate and address any questions. Great, thank you. So I thought we'd start with my first question of just giving people an understanding of how gene editing works, not necessarily technically, but when you work in a company that develops products using gene editing, um, where do the ideas come from? Um, how do you work with it? What kind of resources does it require? And um, how does how do you really get a product to market um, that's being gene edited? Um, Faz, why don't we start with you and you can kind of walk us through. Sure. Um, we use our platform gene editing technology is called Arcus technology. It's a technology that's derived from Chlamydomonas. Uh, so we, we call it, you know, uh, it's nature's own editing system. And so it's a, it's a highly versatile uh, platform that can do pretty much uh, what we want it to do with a great deal of efficacy and efficiency. So, in, in a typical process, what we try not to do is we, we try not to uh, guess that this is what the market needs. So this is where technology and business models come into the picture. So we rely heavily on those who are leaders in the business, who are leaders in the market, to direct us towards what is that trait that the consumer has been looking for for multiple years and how and what we bring to the table is how does one go about developing that trait. For example, our partnership in banana with uh, Dole, uh, the, the biggest problem in banana is TR4, Fusarium, Panama disease. And this is where Dole came to us and they said, uh, we need to solve this. And so the very first thing was for us to identify those genes that contribute to resistance to fusarium. And then from a genome editing perspective, we would identify approaches which 
fit into certain regulatory categories or whatever uh, the consumer is has the preference towards, you know, and, and then start developing or working in that direction. So that's just one example. Thank you. Gilad, how about you? Uh, sure, with pleasure. And I'm, I'm happy to share my view. Uh, I have to say that unlike uh, you know, some, some, of, some of the experts here, my, my background is not in biology. So for me, the last uh, five, six years have been very educational. I think that there's a, there's a difference between, uh, you know, how, how I imagine this process to be uh, five and six years ago and, you know, what, what we've gone through over that time. Uh, with it, if we're thinking about uh, taking a, project, a, pro a product from the conceptualization phase and into the market, I think there's two uh, two main phases, and again, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a very broad uh, uh, simplification. Uh, I would say that usually when we begin, it's 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 very much science oriented. Uh, we're fortunate to have a lot of really bright uh, researchers and fantastic uh, scientific advisors. And we're constantly bouncing around ideas that we test with the market and try to say, you know, and if we're talking about, for example, rice, you know, uh, we look at different diseases and all these diseases that we can uh, address, uh, all these quality traits that are interesting, uh, maybe on, even on a personal note, I think that a lot of the conversations that we have, we have uh, an open WhatsApp group uh, for the team. And every day, you know, I see the team kind of uh, keep shooting different uh, research papers that they encounter. And there's always a question, is this interesting or is that interesting? So I would say that from that kind of initial process, we end up with a few uh, interesting products that we think whether we would want to pursue or not. And, Think we have a good process of testing it against the market and seeing if there's a real uh, potential to justify the uh, the investment in the time to market. And so this is this is the initial and usually the fun part. So after that, there's a very long uh, process of uh, technological development. But I think this is also where there's different components that come into play outside the technology phase. So very clearly intellectual property is, is, is a massive component in that and we try to include uh, these professionals very early on because that could have a massive impact on the, uh, the commercial uh, opportunity in the life of the product in the market. And business development is massive. Uh, different products require different partnerships and different collaborations and we try to do that uh, from an early stage. Uh, the least fun part, I have to say, is the regulation, which uh, I'm not saying it's the least part because it's actually incredibly complex at some times. And uh, at least in our uh, experience, there's, there's not a lot of people globally that are very big experts in, in, in the space. Uh, so we try to work with these professionals again for relatively from an early stage to make sure that we, we tick all the boxes and we address our uh, development in a, in a mature phase. Uh, there, there's a fun part in the beginning, but the execution of making sure that, again, everything is done properly, that can take several years and uh, involve a lot of professionals, many of them uh, you know, true experts in their fields. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we'll talk some more about regulation and, and especially get your your input from Europe um, and the UK, which is you know different than the US. Um, Haven, how about you? Walk us through how Pairwise thinks about products and product development and, and what it takes to get to market. And you bet. So maybe maybe separate the, the, the two things we've heard. And, 
um, a little bit on the idea phase, where the ideas come from, and then maybe I'll go a little bit more in the nuts and bolts about what gene editing is and how you eventually get to seed and plants and a product, if that's okay, briefly. Um, so we're, we've taken a different approach, which we, you know, generally in agriculture, most technology development, and then a lot of things is incremental, right? You're trying to solve last year's problems or the, but you're, you're not trying to take this great leap forward. And so we've gone and looked at, again, we're, we're about driving consumption with consumers and where have we seen fantastic consumption increases? And if you look in the last uh, 30 years, it's things like baby carrots and blueberries. And, and, and actually you see this watermelon, for example, and you've seen both growth, growth rates that have been impressive as well as consumption increases. And so that's what we're after. So, you know, for example, we um, were interested in cherries and sort of the first idea was if we could just get a mirror around, you know, we'd, we'd add a whole bunch of consumption. And we hired a consultant and had him go survey a whole bunch of cherry, cherry companies and, and growers and only one out of 20 came back and said, please take the pits out. So that, that's sort of a great leap forward to not have to spit out the pit, but yet it's non-obvious. Um, so, so then all right, we'll say, okay, now that's our idea. Can we create a pitless cherry? What we would do is we would go look in other, all relatives of cherries, peaches, plums, bushes, ornamentals, and say, has nature already produced a seedless or pitless one? And it turns out it has. And so, and then, and then the question is, is okay, so how, could, could you do that through conventional breeding? It turns out you can, but it would take about 150 years because you'd bring in, this, um, you'd bring in this, this rare variant, you'd cross it with a cherry, and what you'd get wouldn't be either a cherry or, or the red variant. And you keep crossing 150 years later, you might have a pitless cherry. And when, what, we, what we'll do now is say, okay, can we make that genetic change? It's very small, it's sexually compatible, and can we, use, can we do, do that with CRISPR? And so we'll take a couple of years to develop the process of getting the CRISPR into the plant. Then we'll take a couple of years to make the plant. And then if, you, if it magically all works, and sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't, now we've got one tree with a pitless cherry. And now we have to go create rootstock and clone it and go to market. And that takes about another five years to get all those orchards going. So where you had 150 years for the regular process, this this new, these new breeding techniques can shorten that to, to what we're thinking about is 10 years for cherries. And just for, in our case, we're about three years in. So um, we think we'll get there by the end of the decade. Some of the other things we're working on, berries and leafy greens are much faster. So hope, hopefully that helps, Bonnie. Yeah, I think it that's a really good way to to talk about it because people say, oh, this is so much faster, it's so fast. And they say, okay, so then a lot of people think that's going to happen really quickly. Like within a year, you're going to have all these products on the market. But like you said, it, it's not that fast. You know, it, it still takes a lot of time and there's a lot of checks and balances and there's a lot of testing. And so there, there is work that goes into it and it takes a while to get these products on the market. So I'm um, going to continue to work through some list of questions, but I do welcome questions from the audience because this is uh, one of the things that we want to do around gene editing is make sure that we're bringing everyone that's involved in the whole food supply chain along with us and the understanding of what gene editing is, what the benefits are, what the concerns are. So this is a great platform to be able to ask your question with, you know, it's rare that you would have three experts like this that are working in the field. Um, so really ask your questions and I'll try to work through as many of the questions as I can. And um, we'll get answers to your questions if we don't, if we're not able to answer them um, on today's program. Um, 
So I am going to look at some of these other questions. Um, so what is the biggest bottleneck in getting new traits to market? Where is innovation getting stuck right now? The number one thing in, in my uh, uh, opinion is the, the lack of disconnect between real consumer needs and the perceived consumer needs. And, and I think there, there needs to be uh, some level of leveling between those things. And, you know, uh, there is always that cycle of um, hype and then leveling off. And then what, what comes out at the other end is, um, is, is, is something that the market always wanted, but didn't really know that it wanted something. Uh, like, you know, we have, uh, one of the examples is uh, plant-based foods. Uh, plant-based foods was it, it was um, a need in in the consumer space, and and it was it showed up over the last few years, and we are riding the wave. And and then the second part is uh, I I, I want to emphasize that science or the biology of the plant has never been the bottleneck. Uh, but still, at this day, in, in this day and age, uh, we still continue to believe that, uh, you know, there are um, certain bottlenecks, techn technological bottlenecks. I think that's that's a that's a personal bias in those of us who are in the industry uh, and those of us who are in the sciences who believe those. Uh, but that's changing. And then the third part is uh, the lack of or improving situations in, in terms of harmonization of uh, uh, regulatory guidelines across the globe. So to me, those are the three different things that uh, always show up on my radar every time this, the, the bottleneck question is up on the table. We've got lots of good ideas and, and more good ideas than we know what to do with. Our primary bottleneck is that just like in breeding, like, you know, a raspberry pro breeding program is not a strawberry breeding program, which is not a pineapple breeding program, each of these crops, and, and sometimes each variety requires its own CRISPR system. And that tech development is a couple of years of work and it's um, you know maybe as much as a dozen scientists or more getting that right. And so, so we see this crop by crop and we can only, we can, and, and all of that technology has already been developed in the row crops by the, by the big ag companies. But for fruits and vegetables, each one of these is different. And sometimes universities have done this before, like in strawberries, and sometimes there's been absolutely no effort, and the companies have to invent it from scratch. But crop, each each crop's a different system, and that and for us, it's primary technology development area right now. We're we're on track where we've developed those technologies. Hey, Haven, I'll pick on you on this one a little bit. And when I look at it from where I sit, since I'm no longer in a technology company, I. I'm concerned about the market pull through of these products. And so when you, when you look at um, our retailers going to carry the products, our consumers going to accept the products, you know, kind of going into the social license part of it in the, in the product, the products, the produce products that, that you're developing, is there a concern that there's not going to be pull through um, or how do you think about that? I mean, I don't know. Do you do you actually like the pits and cherries, Bonnie? <laughs> uh, we're we're actually not that concerned. Um, I think that I think there needs to be a clear benefit, and you need to be transparent. And so, let me give you another example. And we we're working on a seedless blackberry among among blackberries, and it's in, and 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 we're getting the taste right too. So they taste really good. But 
you know, we've surveyed Blackberry buyers and 85% of them do not like the seeds. There's a few people like the crunch every once in a while. Someone says, I really like to chew on them, but most people don't like them. And then there are a bunch of other consumers that won't buy them because they get their seeds or maybe they have diverticulitis or something. So, you know, our goal is to expand these markets. And But I, I, I think that you're right, that you have to have a clear benefit. And um, and if you have a clear benefit, I don't think there'll be an issue. Now, the, the overall technology acceptance, it, it is new this time. And it, and, and it does help that gene editing is not GMO. So this is another breeding technique. It's, it's not GMO, at least in the U.S. and most of South America and Australia and Japan. And so we've got really good alignment. And, um, but I, I this get back, get this, this gets back to is the benefit really there for consumers to try something new? Yeah, I think that's really the case. And, and we've talked about this, you know, in the industry a lot about some of the early traits in GMOs. Um, but yeah, if you have a benefit that consumers really want, I, I think that changes the conversation. And I think, um, you know, we talk, we're talking about uh, bananas that both other companies are working on. And like, if you're going to save the banana industry, just like we saved the papaya industry, I think those become different conversations. And I think that's really, we need kind of the killer app, you know? Why so much emphasis on consumer needs rather than agronomic needs of growers? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to address it. I think okay. that, uh, and it really addresses your earlier comment about the, the market pool. I think that when we think about the value chain of some of these products, we do need to take into consideration the different components of it. So uh, you have the growers, you have the processors, and you have the consumers. Uh, and, and, and the reality is that each one of them seek different types of value. So for example, if we think about uh, disease resistance or, or yield is something that could be very appealing for growers, whereas uh, perhaps uh, higher uh, or better nutritional content or other type of quality traits is something that's very appealing for uh, consumers. And I think that, you know, at least for us, the holy grail is trying to to combine both, uh, meaning that if you have a, a killer type application for the for the farmers, uh, you know, addressing a, a major need like climate change, drought, diseases, you have a very strong entry point in the market. So perhaps the seed market uh, is, is smaller than the the consumer market, but then you have this very strong uh, pool and adoption. If you can at least in our view, uh, bolt on top of that also a, a quality type uh, that opens up not just the kind of the the production margin, but also the the premium that the consumer can pay. That can be incredibly important. I'd say that the tropic biosciences. I would say probably over the last three years we've dedicated more and more of our time and effort into uh, agronomic traits, uh, partly because. Uh, I think it's, it's realistic to, to assume, and over the last year, we've seen it uh, come into play more and more that uh, with climate change, the challenges that farmers are going to uh, to experience are going to grow more and more. So at least in our view, I think we are transitioning into a period where people are going to speak more and more about yields and, and, and diseases, unfortunately. Uh, but I think as an industry, if we can combine both of these, we, you know, it, it's a... Uh, uh, it's magic. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll take a different take on the same question. Try to be brief. Um, you know, I I look at the salad industry, and 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 we're getting ready to bring some new products to market. But 
so I've been buying everything that's out there and bringing it home. And my kids, and I got a bunch of kids flat out tell me, I do not want to eat anything with cabbage in it. I want Caesar salad. And so we want to bring a healthy green, but all they want is romaine. Um, I mean, they'd eat iceberg if we let them too. But, you know, this gets to this disconnect that um, our mission is to increase fruits and vegetable consumption. We're trying to grow the category and grow the industry. And so that we that, that's probably a place to start with the consumer first. The other thing is that technology is expensive now. Now, 10 years from now, the technology will be quite a bit cheaper. And maybe we can work on these diseases that happen every other year. But finding a consistent problem that will still be a problem in five years after you spend all this money developing products, that's an important, important point. And I think um, the consumer is a much better place to start with that than probably the farmer. I would agree with both of you guys. And, and, and also, as, as a slight qualifier, uh, <clears throat> Climate change is is something that's that's here now, and we've been talking about you know HLB and we've been talking about you know, Fusarium TR4 and Pierce's disease and grapes and what have you. So those those are big binary questions. Uh, you you consumer has decided at this point based on all the surveys and uh, all the data that you know there is there is a technology pull there is a need for technology to solve these problems and and therefore we are uh, in this space and on the flip side uh, our zero melon program for example there is also uh, a, a, a hybrid need for a natural zero calorie sweetener that we are producing in watermelon at scale to get over the bottlenecks of utilization of you know uh, monk fruit based sweeteners in beverages and uh, food items. So that's where I think the the consumer pull will then instigate or initiate inquiry within you know input traits agronomic uh, you know traits and what have you based by the de- based on the demand that we create uh, on the consumer side so i i don't think what i'm trying to say is they are not independent of each other it is which one pulls the other uh, and at what time and it depends on the crop depends on the time of day and uh, depends on and on the market segment. Yeah, I would add to that just as my experience of working for a lot of technology companies is in the 90s <laughs> is that um, one of the things that I think we realized is how important it is to bring the consumers along in this conversation. And I think in some of the early products um, that were genetically modified with grower traits, the consumers felt like that they weren't getting the benefit and they felt like they were taking a risk. And so I think a lot of the focus with gene editing is just been to, to make sure that consumers understand and that that they're getting this amazing benefit that um, technology is bringing to them in a safe way. So I, I think that's uh, those of us who kind of show the scars of early genetic modification. I think this is is a way to make sure that you know consumers are kind of brought along. What do you think will be the future of agriculture related with the farmer's adoption of genetically modified crops being based on GMOs or gene editing? Will both coexist in the market or GMOs are going to be displaced sooner or later? I think in produce, you won't see GMOs. Um, One, they're too small markets. There are some things that gene editing can't do, right? Right now, I mean, Galad's actually more cutting edge on this with insect resistance, but insects resistance right now is a GMO trait. You probably can't, I'm not sure you can create that with gene editing. Maybe you can someday, 
but so, but I, I think with produce, with these small crops, we'll want a staging edited. Um, there's plenty of innovation to, to, to be done, done there. It'll be a long time. So uh, row crops is probably going to be a, a mixture of technologies. Yeah. Maybe to build on that and absolutely uh, agree with it. I think that what is likely not going to change in this differentiation between genetic and GMO is the time and cost to market. So GMO with the regulatory requirements, it's, it's, it will always be more expensive to, to, to make. And if we think about produce, the likelihood that some of these GM type traits is going to uh, make any return on its investment is low. So absolutely agree with Avenir's analysis that we, we, uh, something very catastrophic will need to happen in order to, to justify a GM uh, trait. And, and you mentioned the papaya, which you know, is, is one good example to that. Well, in raw corps, you know, it, it can justify it. There's a GM trait that cannot be created using uh, gene editing, and it does have a return on the investment over long terms. Uh, these these two things can can coexist. Yeah, it, I, I I think in the near future, uh, based on where we are with the secure rule and whatnot, uh, those two categories will blend into one. Uh, products of biotechnology kind of category, and uh, that is, we, we won't see any, you know, uh, uh, true transgenics, but uh, you you might you might see a blending of editing and uh, uh, GMO recycled uh, elements from the past GMO com uh, components very soon. Here's a question that um, I love this question, um, and I none of us know the answer for sure, but I'd love to hear your opinions. Um, we currently see the wonders of gene editing and science in the medical field with the COVID vaccine, but yet even with this science and its success, we are seeing public resistance. What can the food industry learn from the COVID vaccine experience? You're not going to keep anyone, everyone happy? Um, I think that maybe 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 another aspect of some of our consumer studies that you know will be obvious to some people in the industry, but maybe maybe not to, to everyone. Which is that you know when you when you go study a produce buyer and you want to study them, we would study it by berries or in the past study it by potatoes. There's a percentage of the population that wants to know everything, right? Every last detail you can possibly get. No amount of they want to know all the information. And and sometimes those are your organic buyers, but it might be ten or fifteen percent of the population. But there's then another 50% of the population that don't want to know anything. They just want to buy a product, not engage with it emotionally, and enjoy it. It's, keep it simple. And so I think that that's one of the challenges we have with all these new technologies. It doesn't matter whether it's self-driving cars or AI or better iPhones. Is how do you satisfy an audience where, or a customer segment where some, one, 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 one part of the population is never satisfied with the information and the, and the rest of it, a large portion, don't really want to engage. They just want to enjoy their iPhone enjoy their item and move on with their lives. And so I think that that'll be one of the challenges um, that we'll, we'll continuously have in, in this field and others is getting the appropriate level of communication to the right audiences. And, and maybe that, you know, that we were in a pandemic. I don't think that quite happened um, this last go around. We, 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 we tended to oversaturate some of these markets with too much information or the wrong information or too early information. And we got, a, we got pushback. 
I would agree. And in part of it is what we are trying to avoid is to get into that kind of a conversation because there is, it's it's a very difficult uh, uh, it's a situation to uh, please hundred percent of uh, the consumers. And therefore, what, what we are trying to address are these big hairy problems where there is a massive technology pull. Uh, and and I think in those kind of situations, uh, it, the question always is, uh, you know, it's it's a, like I mentioned before, it's a binary thing. Uh, would you rather uh, go without bananas or would you rather go without uh, natural zero calorie sweetener? Or uh, do something else, or uh, and or live it status quo, and and in those kind of scenarios, for us, uh, I think two components come into the picture. One is uh, the commercializing entity or our partners uh, become a big component of that data and and keeping the consumers happy and satisfied, and and then the second part is. Uh, for us, what we are trying, what we have learned over the COVID period, is uh, is that you know there are technological solutions for any kind of problems. Uh, yes, it may not make 100% of the consumers happy, but those are viable solutions, and we have seen this over the last year and a half. That you know it is it is a life saving approach. Uh, the COVID vaccine. So a number of people uh, in the chat saw the New York Times article that was in the New York Times magazine on um, Sunday and would like to know what um, your reaction to that article is and what reaction you've gotten. And um, in the article, it's a great article. I recommend um, anyone read it. Um, Pairwise is interviewed. So Haven, why don't we start with you and see what what reaction you've gotten from the article, what you thought of the article, and then um, we'll hear from the other two panelists. I think that, um, I mean, overwhelmingly, the response we've received um, has been positive. And I think there's two, two levels of that. One is you know, the, the reporter that wrote it was interested in the products we're writing and interested and also Kathy Martins and some of these others. So the, the products are, you're starting, there's some signals that the products are interesting, which is, which is great market feedback or pre-market feedback. The other, the other piece is that, um, you know, the, an institution like the New York Times, which has an incredible reach, is willing to engage on the conversation in general. I think that's a very positive signal for, for, the, for this field. So um, it's, it's been overwhelmingly positive uh, from our perspective. And I think maybe the last thing is, is that we, we do think transparency is really, really important, both, both with the consumer and the public in general. And I think you see some of that sort of paying off is, is if you can be as open as you can be, um, um, that, um, that people recognize the, the, the sincerity and it's easier to get to these benefits without, 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 without the secrecy. Any other comments on the article or um, positive or negative? I, I, it, it was a great read and it was a very well-written article and and uh, congratulations to uh, Haven and his team for uh, a great coverage. And I think it's it's an overall great win for the industry because this is this is not, it's the next level of dialogue. Right. It is not about whether or not this is good, dangerous or um, safe. It is what is what is the benefit and how are the industries and the consumers and the companies are taking the technology forward into products of the future. 
So to me, uh, I, I, I welcome the article. Yeah, I thought I thought it was really fantastic and really put a kind of a human face and human stories. And, and it's a way when you look at how do we communicate to um, consumers about this type of technology, this is a great way to do it, you know, with with colorful pictures and personal stories and, and benefits. So I, I really welcomed it. Um, so this is a great question. Um, why is this not considered GMO in the U.S.? And are there countries where it is considered GMO? The difference here is for, for most of the world outside Europe, and I guess New Zealand, that if you're using foreign DNA, so DNA that didn't come from the species or the family you're working on, it's considered GMO. If, it's, if it could have been done through breeding, it's just being done faster, um, then it's like many of the other technologies we're already using, like DNA chips and things like that. It's just a laboratory method to bring, make breeding faster. And that, that's what makes it non-GMO. It's really that, that there's, no, there's no foreign material in the, left in the plant. There's a number of questions around um, kind of transparency and communication. Um, and this is certainly uh, a conversation that's happening in the industry of, of how, if, if you're using gene editing, and this is for the U.S., and you don't right now, it's not, um, it's not considered GMO. How do we communicate with consumers? Do consumers want to know, um, give them the choice, is there going to be, you know, a code? Is there going to be a sticker? What, what will happen um, when gene-edited products in the produce industry hit the market? Well, since we're going to go first, I'll say yeah. all our products are going to be branded. So it's, it's not only going to be differentiated, it's going to be branded. And, and we probably won't have the big technology story in the package. That'll be on the website, but it, it'll be transparent and clear. And so I think, you know, I can't say for other approaches, but, uh, but initially we're, we're, that's one of the reasons we're going to have branded produce. That makes yeah, sense. It's, it's got to be. And, and I don't know, uh, Haven, uh, is, is your Innate Potato website still on? Do you know? I haven't checked it in a few months. Yeah. So, so I, I really liked what, what you guys did there back when you were at Simplot. Uh, there was a link and I think there was a QR code. You could go in and, and that would open up the website. And there they had all the details of the technology. Uh, but th I think, you know, that way, those who are seeking details of the information, that's available to them. Uh, but now you, you don't want to have... Uh, you know, too many technical details printed on the label or whatever. Um, but that's that's how we are looking at our zero melon product and also uh, the our chickpea products as well. So you would have some kind of a, a QR code or some kind of link where people could find out. But if they if they picked up the product to buy it, they wouldn't necessarily know. I'm just clarifying. I, I think it would be it would be clearly labeled that it's a product of genome editing and how exactly it was edited and what was edited and what was changed uh, and all the details, whether this would have been a natural change or uh, whatever uh, is would, would be available at, on a website. I've got a great comment here uh, from someone from Del Monte saying that they're not seeing any consumer resistance on the pink pineapple. Um, so I, I didn't know that. That's great to hear. I still haven't had one. Anyone want to send me one? You know, I'll take it. <laughs> but they look great. Um, but, but, but maybe that's a good example of uh, communication. I think that eventually 
I think all of the different products that uh, the companies we present the deal and others we're working on are quite are quite valuable and things that we are very proud in. And again, the Del Monte Pink Pineapple, which is delicious, and I, I think is a phenomenal product, uh, are the same. So I think maybe instead of thinking about it as you know being very defensive and saying you know this was what you know, the, you know kind of being in a position when we need to explain and to. Uh, to defend our product, I think we can be in a position where we can be very proud and say, you know, a, this product was developed using gene editing and it allows you to be more nutritious or we saved a lot of uh, chemicals or we allowed for use of less water in production. So there are ways to address it. I think a good example of that, and someone mentioned in the Q&A, the Arctic Apple from, uh, I think it's now in Trexon. I think that the way that they explained it on their uh, packaging was, you know, this is a GMO apple. But if we didn't uh, make this apple non-brown using uh, genetics, we would have used to use like uh, sulfate, etc. So it's, it's kind of your choice and people, people buy that apple. It's a good apple. Uh, if it takes 10 years or so for a new uh, gene-edited product given, uh, to get to market, given the cost uh, and the licenses, etc., is the pain worth the gain versus uh, just best plant breeding? Depends on the crop. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, uh, some might take 10 years and some might take four years. Um, so I think, and, and then the pain versus gain also depends on the crop and the market. Uh, so, uh, for example, you know, bananas, uh, we, we hope to get to uh, a resistance trade very quickly. Uh, but the scaling up and adoption of that in, in the plantations is going to take some time, right? So that's the, that's the reality of the, uh, of the industry. Uh, on the same note, if you develop something that's uh, suited for vertical farm, let's say uh, you develop, you know, a trait in lettuce or uh, everything that uh, Pairwise is doing or Tropic is doing uh, in that space, uh, that, could, uh, that could take a shorter period of time. So either way, I think if you have a successful consumer-focused trade or a quality trade, uh, I, I, I'm in the business because I, I do believe that the pain is worth the gain. Even if these new gene-edited products have attractive consumer traits, big retailers will still need to trial them and have and they have been reticent to do this with GMO. How will you change this? And do you think this is an issue? You know, it, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think that that, that that question is well framed, but I think the other examples of tech food um, have, have gone quite rapidly, whether it's the plant-based milks or, or the Impossible Burger or things like that. And so that, um, I mean, that's maybe sort of an older view in the world and, and, and so different and different retailers will be different, but we, when we do our consumer surveys and we look at all the other new, new tech enhanced foods, we think this is absolutely on trend and the innovation will be important. And, um, and, 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 and frankly, you'll, you'll want to start with places that produce is important for the retailers. It's not just about cost, it's about driving a better consumer experience. Maybe another benefit in this regard of, of gene editing is the precision. I think that, um, when you try to bring someone that's kind of absolutely different from everything that everyone used to consume, it's, it's, it, it, there's a lot uh, less uh, certainty. 
But when we think about genetic traits, a lot of the time these are very, uh, very clear and very well defined. So for example, you can have the exactly the same uh, uh, fruit that everyone is used to, the same size, color, and even the taste, and maybe you only change uh, one nutrient in it or a disease resistance. So it's, 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 it's a much more controlled change. And to some degree, what we're seeing is that it creates uh, more confidence from the, the industry itself. How will you access germplasm and hybrid varieties? Do you consider collaborating or partnering with fruit and vegetable or other seed companies? So quick, quick answer on that from each of you. Our business model is entirely based on partnering. So uh, we access through our partners and we work only on uh, elite germplasm and nothing else. Thanks. I think for us, uh, when we select our, uh, the corpse that we focus on and develop from zero and eventually uh, become uh, dominant players within this corpse, we actually look for corpse where we can be, we can, we can access not just the elite germplasm, but also the distribution without being hindered or, or uh, you know, connected in the heap to a single uh, provider. Uh, we feel that that kind of creates... Uh, uh, it doesn't lend itself to healthy margins uh, long term. So I think that venturing into corpse where there is a few dominant players that own the germplasm is uh, challenging itself. So there's, there's a lot of corpse outside of that that can be addressed. Okay. Haven, wrapping up. Yeah, real quick. So, um, you know, sometimes elite means bad tasting in produce, right? Where they're high yielding, but they don't taste good. And so we're absolutely partnering germ- germplasm with but we want to bring the best tasting fruit and vegetables forward that we can get. And so we'll actually sacrifice on yield if we have to a little bit to bring that great taste along with the genetic, because it doesn't do any of us any good to, to, to bring some new attribute, but have the produce not taste good. So, and, and, and that's generally something I should say, maybe the genetic is not doing is enhancing flavor. That's still way too complicated. What we're, what we're really doing is, is adding some other benefit or maybe reducing a negative. Um, and so the germplasm selection is really, really important to bring that to bring that consumer experience, make that as positive as it can be. Great. Thank you. I hope you found that episode as fascinating as I did. Gene editing is a precise breeding tool that will help solve many of the problems we are facing today, along with delivering more convenient and tasty fruits and vegetables. Please let me know if you have additional questions or are looking for more resources on the topic. We want consumers to gain the value of the technology to both them and the environment and be able to make informed choices. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time. Mm